Thank you, Megan. Yeah, it's it's great to, to come back here. I, I uh, have known Scott since probably 1996 is when uh, we first met, and um, we've been we've been uh, kindred spirits and very good friends ever since that time. And then in 2011, he convinced me to leave my home church, of uh, which my wife and family and I were very very comfortable. And um, to come back up here and participate in this church plan thing he was doing. And uh, so I was here from 2011 to 2015. And so uh, really on the ground floor of, of seeing what God has done here in such wonderful, glorious ways. I mean, to come back here and to see how things are going. And, you know, for me, I, I look around and, um, I mean, I helped purchase these chairs. I hung these speakers um, we painted these walls. It's things that are still here that uh, we were doing back then, and it's just so wonderful to see, and so it's great, great to be back. And I said to someone earlier, I don't know if I should preach a sermon or just tell you a bunch of stories about Scott, um, but uh, if you feel the way, same way about him as I do, um, you're in a good place. You have a good pastor. You have a pastor who loves the Lord, who loves uh, doing the king's work and loves participating in what we're going to talk about today in the Great Commission and seeing lost souls saved, lives transformed, and the kingdom of God growing, even in the midst of a hard and difficult season. Amen? Amen. And so that is where we're going to uh, spend our time this morning on the Great Commission. At my church over in the Central Valley, we just finished the book of Matthew. It took about a year and a half to get through the book of Matthew. And of course, it ends in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. And so I thought I'd spend a little bit of time with you this morning talking about that. And I hope we'll learn some things together. I hope it may challenge you a little bit to think maybe a little more broadly or biblically about the Great Commission. But as, as I was just praying in the back earlier and trying to kind of read the room I hope most of all, Rock Bible Church, what you'll be when you leave here this morning is encouraged. Encouraged as a disciple of Jesus Christ who's participating in the Great Commission and building his kingdom until he returns. Amen? And so that's my hope for, for, for all of us as we end our time. So the Great Commission is at the end of the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew is essentially a book that tells us who Jesus is. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the son of man. That was his favorite reference for himself out of the book of Daniel. He is the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah and Christ of God. And for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, he is God incarnate. He's the divine God-man, God in the flesh, the very appearance of God. For if you have seen Jesus, he says, you have seen the Father. And so... He offers grace and mercy to all who will worship him and believe in him and become his disciple, his servant, or even his slave. Doulos is the word that's used in the Greek, and it's more, most, more literally translated slave of Christ. The ESV Study Bible says this about the theme of Matthew. Jesus is both Christ and Emmanuel, God with us, fulfilling the ancient promises and bringing God's reign on earth through his life, death, and resurrection. The Christ of God has come. God has revealed himself in Christ as he has fulfilled the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And he's now saving people by his grace, calling them as his disciples to grow and build his kingdom on earth 
as it is in heaven through his body and bride, the church, until he returns. And so there's a cosmic significance when it comes to the Bible. And what I mean by that is that the Bible and its message is the meaning and gives meaning to everything. Everything. It tells us who God is, who man is, what's wrong with the world, how God fixes it, where history is headed. And of course, its central character in all these things is Jesus Christ. He is the one who created all things, sustains all things, and by his power, all things in the universe, seen or unseen, are upheld and exist. Colossians 1, Paul writes about this very thing. He tells us that Jesus is the image or representation of the invisible God, the firstborn or heir of creation, of all creation, that by Jesus all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things in earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's pretty extensive, yes? I mean, it includes how many things? All things, right? Everything is about Jesus. And the part we're most interested in what Paul says is that Jesus is the supreme one. He is the supreme one and is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. In other words, Jesus is quelling or crushing the rebellion against God in the universe. Peace has come and is continuing to come because of the cross. The cross is the great pivot point of all history. As Christ now sits at the right hand of power, ruling and reigning over the cosmos as he builds and grows his church and expands his kingdom throughout the earth, through his redeemed and reconciled people. And that's exciting. That's good news. The redemptive plans of God, which is his kingdom come, permeates all reality. It permeates all reality, whether we think so or not, whether people like it or not, and whether we are participating in it or not. This is what's happening in the world when you look around and you see how the world is in such chaos, such, such turmoil, right? We're experiencing it here in our country, maybe like never before, but it's even worse in other parts of the world. When, when we look around and we see this, it's because, it's because Jesus is reconciling things to himself and bringing peace. Because friends, the world, the devil, and the flesh hates this hates this. That's why it's so chaotic. The world hates the church, hates the community of holiness and righteousness that God's people bring to the world through transformed lives that build his church, which build and promote his kingdom in culture and in the world. And so friends, we're caught up in this ancient battle, right, in which Christ has already won. He's already won. And he will continue to win 
through his people until the time of his return. And so as we get to the Great Commission, it's important to understand first that it lives in the context of redemptive history, okay? It doesn't live in a vacuum. And redemptive history is essentially life's history. It's the story of scripture, which is the story of everything. One way that makes it easier to remember is through what I like to call the cosmic drama, right? We're living in the cosmic drama. And the way I like to explain it is creation, fall, rescue, and restoration, okay? This is the story of everything. In the beginning, God. God created all things, and he looked around at all he had created, and he said what? It's good. This is really good, right? But then something happens, the fall, right? Through Satan, the deception of Satan, through Adam and Eve's sin, this great fall occurs where sin now enters into the equation, and it it doesn't do away with God's good creation, but it tarnishes and spoils it right? And, and, and that's why there's so much just junk in the world and has been since that time. And so you have creation, God creates all things, the fall occurs, and because Adam and Eve were the, the, the first to be created, it infects everybody, right? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, right? We're born into iniquity, We're the progeny of Adam and Eve, and so we're infected with this thing called sin. But God wastes no time, and right in Genesis 3.15, he puts a plan in place, and this is where the rescue starts, when he says that the seed of the woman, that's the first time we hear the gospel, will crush the head of the serpent, okay? And so that's that's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first gospel in which we see God instituting his rescue plan, And then the rest of scripture is how God brings that about. And you have all these wonderful promises in the Old Testament, and then you get to the cross. And this is the high point, the climax of rescue history. And we're still in that process because we haven't yet gotten to restoration. That is when Christ will return, judge the living and the dead, and then live with his people in holiness and righteousness forever and eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Amen? And so that's what's going on in the world. That's what's happening. And in this time of rescue that we're still in, Christ is reconciling the lost. He's building his kingdom and he's bringing peace through the work of his disciples. Now, far too often, the Great Commission is thought of in a much too narrow way, as though the text sort of lives out there and it's only for those who are called to the mission field or to be pastors or to be in ministry work. But the truth is, that the Great Commission belongs to everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what I hope to explain for us this morning. We're not all called to be foreign missionaries, although it's wonderful work. We're not all called to paid Christian ministry. All disciples of Christ are called to participate in the Great Commission in some way. And I hope by the end of today's sermon, you'll understand two things. One, how vast and wide and deep and broad are the ways in which Christ's disciples participate in the Great Commission. And then two, how you can begin understanding and finding your place more and more in that Great Commission that Christ has called you to as he continues to reconcile all things to himself, bring peace, build his kingdom in the world through his disciples until his return.
And so, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16, because that's where we're going to start. As I told you before, the Great Commission lives in a context, and one of the great places to start to understand that context is Matthew 16, when Peter confesses Christ. And so let me read uh, verses 13 through 20 for us. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged them not to tell anyone who he was. Now, we don't have time to flesh this whole thing out. There's two things that are important in regards to the Great Commission. First, Jesus says he is going to build his church. He says, I will build my church. And when Jesus says he's going to do something, bank on it. Just bank on it. Why? Because it's Jesus. Amen? Bank on it. And that's what he's been doing since the time of his resurrection. Through his disciples and his called out people, Jesus has been building his kingdom by building his church. A new era arrived in Jesus. A new epic in redemptive history is now taking place. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus has arrived. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises, and he says he will build his church. Friends, the church is God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. Are you with me? The church of Christ, his church, is plan A for reconciling all things to himself, and there is no plan B. Second, He says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it or overcome it. As the kingdom of God invades history through Christ's church, Allah, his people, the gates of hell will have no power to overcome it. And that's what's been going on since the time of Christ. You know, we we live in probably, well, not probably, I would say definitely the most prosperous, affluent, comfortable, and, and peaceful time of history ever, ever, right? We're all going to go home to air-conditioned home, flushing toilets, microcomputers in our hand. Life is pretty comfortable today. And this is, listen to me, this is primarily due to the influence of Christianity in the world. It is. It absolutely is. Wherever biblical Christianity has flourished, people have prospered, and liberty has been cultivated and advanced. When Christianity wanes, when it wanes, we're seeing the effects of that right now. We're seeing the effects of that in our culture right now. But friends, don't lose heart because Jesus will continue to build his church and the gates of hell are powerless to overcome or stop it. The kingdom will continue to expand And if the United States falls out of favor with the Lord, as it seems to be doing, you can be sure, you can be certain that the kingdom of God will explode somewhere else. 
as we get closer and closer to Christ's return. Amen? You you may remember or be familiar with the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven and how they start small and and, and then how they grow and grow and grow. And and with the leaven, it it, it leavens the the whole loaf, right? Well, what did Jesus say these things represent? He said they represent the kingdom of God in the world. And that's what's going on. There have been many attempts by Satan and the world to stop the growth of Christ's church, but friends, it just keeps growing and growing and growing, and it will continue to grow. It must continue to grow because Jesus. Amen? It must continue to grow because Jesus. And this is the context in which the Great Commission was given to the apostles and, been, and has been passed down to followers and disciples of the king. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, read as follows. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, we might think that the Great Commission starts with a command to go and make disciples, but this isn't the case. The Great Commission actually starts with these words. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. And this goes back to what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, the heir of all creation. Just like the firstborn son of a family receives the inheritance or is put in charge of his father's affairs, so Christ as God's only begotten son and through his faithfulness in his work and his resurrection has now been given, has inherited all authority in heaven and earth from the father to govern, to rule, and to reign over the universe forever. 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 1, 1 Peter 3 are other places in which it states the same. And so what does it mean then that Jesus has all authority? It's not a mystery. It means he has all authority, all power, all supremacy over everything. There's nothing in the universe in which Jesus isn't in charge of or in control of. And because of this, he is able to give the commission or the command, it's literally a command for his disciples to go and make disciples of the nations. So what Jesus is literally saying when he says, go make disciples, is because I have authority over all things in heaven and earth, okay, therefore, you go and make disciples. That's what he's saying. I'm the one in charge. I'm governing all things. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Don't doubt. Don't hesitate. You've seen me. You've heard me. You've touched me. You've been taught by me. You've believed in me. I am the risen Lord who has all authority over Uh, and power over Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, go and make disciples as my witnesses, even to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. You'll die, and they all die badly. You know anything about the history of the, the original apostles? They all die bad. The message to them is that when you do, you can know with great confidence that you've been doing the king's work of reconciliation in the world. 
and that you'll be with me in the end. Friends, we're here because of the foundation they laid. You see, the greatest treasure for the Christian is not what Christ does for us or gives to us. He's given us everything. The greatest treasure for the Christian is Christ himself and what we do for him. Let me say that again. The greatest treasure for Christians is not what Christ does for us. He's given us everything. The greatest treasure for the Christian is Christ himself and what we can do to serve him. Because in Christ, we're a new creation. We've received all things from him. And so this is why these original apostles could have such great confidence in their witness because they saw, they heard, they touched Jesus after his resurrection. Not only were they equipped personally to be witnesses, they were equipped legally to be witnesses. There's a legal component to everything in scripture. And so when John writes, believe this message we're giving you because I've seen him, I've touched him, I've heard him. I saw his resurrection, right? They're not just emotionally driven witnesses. They're legal witnesses to what they saw and experienced in Christ. And it's interesting, this word witness in the Greek is martus. We get another word in our English language from that. It's martyr. That's literally what the word means, to be one who goes out and proclaims the things of Christ. And so the commission or command has been given to make disciples of all nations. And, and what Jesus is saying is to go and do your best, okay, to make all nations Christian. That's literally what he's saying. And, and that that is the king's commission. That is the king's command. Listen to what Matthew Henry, the wonderful Puritan, says about this passage. He says, what is the principal intention of this commission to disciple all nations? It means do your utmost to make the nations Christian nations. Christ the mediator is setting up a kingdom in the world. Bring the nations to be his subjects. Setting up a school, bring the nations to be his scholars. Raising an army, and here it is, for the carrying on of the war against the powers of darkness. Enlist the nations of the earth under his banner of love. It's a great comment on these passages. Now, I do want to say, and I want you to understand, that this commission or command of Jesus is not one of military or political conquest. Okay, we need to be clear on that. Christian statism, if there ever was such a thing, I don't think there could be, be an oxymoron, but it would be as bad as the worldly and demonic statism that we now have and have experienced. We are to win people with the gospel, a gospel that builds and grows churches that then transform communities and then impact the world for God's glory. This is how we build Christ's kingdom and make disciples of all nations. The apostles who came before us laid the foundation and we are continuing to build on that foundation of which Christ is the cornerstone. Does that sound familiar? Then the Bible, right? They laid the foundation of which Christ is the cornerstone, and we are continuing to build on that foundation. And there are certainly those in the church today who think it's futile to try and make disciples of all nations as Christ commanded. 
And it's sometimes said that this is an effort like polishing brass on a sinking ship. I don't know if you've ever heard something like that. And others think that the church has no place or voice in culture or in politics. And I, for one, think this flies in the face of the great commission that we've been given. Um, And I think it's ultimately a result of selfish, lazy, personalized, me-centered religion that has inculcated the modern church over the last 60 or so years. Now, the church doesn't always get things right. But friends, let 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 me say this. If the church and her people fail to stop calling people to repentance and faith and discipleship, if the church either separates itself from the world, which is sectarianism, or becomes too much like the world, that's called syncretism, then what hope is there for the world? What hope is there? What hope is there for lost people? There's no hope. Personally, I think maybe the way our world is going today is the wake-up call. We need to re-engage the command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations through the gospel that saves souls, that changes lives, and even wins nations for the glory of God and his rule. Jesus, friends, is the only hope for the world. Amen? He is the only hope for the world. And the church is his tool. We are his tool, and we have been called to be his disciples and ambassadors in the world, promoting and growing his kingdom until the time of his return. And so if the commission or command is to make disciples of all nations, how are we to do it? Okay, so the imperative or the command in the text is to make disciples. The participles or the parts that explain how that's done is in going, baptizing, and teaching. Okay, these are the general principles of how we're to fulfill that command. And and here's a part I want you to hear. Going can be a thousand different things. I already mentioned, going is not limited to missionaries or pastors. It's it's parents or, in many more difficult cases, parent who are trying to raise kids in a Christian home. It's it's young people striving to walk in holiness in a lust-saturated culture. It's uh, it's the, 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 the businessman and the policeman and the homemaker and the teacher and the computer tech and so on and so on and so on. It's anyone who calls themselves a disciple of the king. They're called to go and make disciples in whatever context God has placed before them. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what it means, it means to participate in the building of the kingdom. You can only do it if you're part of a church. Right? The church is vitally important to the cause of Christ. And so the going can look a thousand different ways, whatever context Jesus has put in your life. And I say that because sometimes we minimize. We minimize things like the Great Commission. I mentioned there, and it just comes to my mind because we have folks in our own ministry, and certainly my past have struggled with this, you know, single parents. What a difficult job right? Single parenting has got to be one of the most difficult jobs in the world, especially for Christian parents who are working so hard to raise their children up as Christians in a hostile, hostile environment. They're doing the Great Commission, friends. I learned a long time ago, and I've tried to hold to this as much as I can. While I have a congregation at First Baptist Church of Ripon, my first congregation actually sleeps in my house, 
I have three daughters and a wife and two dogs. I don't know if they're going to make it to heaven or not, but we'll have to wait and see. All dogs go to heaven, so just if that, that comment bothered you, we know all dogs go to heaven. They're my first congregation. They're my first great commission work. Are you with me? That's, that's as vital. Listen, that's as vital as me standing up here and preaching to you this morning, right? This is a place of what happens in the Great Commission, but it is no more important than parents or a parent trying to raise their kids Christian in a hostile environment, right? Or the, the, the man who just labors every day to care for his family, to make money for his family through hard work. Whatever it is, whatever the context is, you're participating in Great Commission work when you pursue things in Christ. So that's the first thing. Baptism in Jesus' command implies that the gospel is being shared and that people are becoming disciples of Jesus. As we share the gospel, the story of redemptive history, the cosmic drama of creation, fall, rescue, restoration, as we live in holy communities as Christ's body and bride, and as we promote the biblical values and virtues of God's kingdom in every sphere of culture and society, People recognize their need for Jesus, they repent of sin, and they place their faith and trust in Christ, and are then saved and transformed by his grace. And this, friends, is the picture that baptism paints, that we are dead in Christ and then risen to new life. It represents the entrance of someone declaring that they are now part of Team Jesus. They have exchanged their jersey, okay? The jersey of the world and their former master, Satan, for the jersey of God and their new master, King Jesus, that they are now a disciple, servant, and even slave of the king of the cosmos. They were once lost to the world, but God has saved them, and now they are soldiers in the king's army, ready to be trained and equipped to join in the battle against the powers of darkness. They have now become part of the family of God and those who work to promote the kingdom of God until Christ returns. So when God saves a soul and when these things occur, we call this justification, right? That's the big fancy theological word for it. We call it justification, that we are now justified before the king of glory. And then this leads to the next step, as Jesus says to them, teach them, teach them. The disciples of the nations, teach them to observe or literally obey all that I've commanded. And this teaching, this training and equipping is what happens primarily in the church. You know, I listened to Scott's sermon last week, and he challenged you, and rightly so, to observe what you're doing, not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. So Jesus says to the apostles that in their making disciples of all nations, you're to teach them to observe, to obey all that Christ has commanded. And this is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process with ups and downs, bumps and bruises. People go through it at different paces. And this is what we call in theology sanctification, right? It's the growing as a Christian. As we grow in understanding of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do. And so there's a process that takes place for those in the Lord's army as they move from being, listen, immature to being then mature in Christ, if you have any experience with the military, it's very much like this. That when you go in, I was in the Marines. So when you go into boot camp, believe me when I say, 
after three months, you're transformed. <laughs> you are not what you once were. You think differently, you feel differently, you act differently. And you go in, though, as a private. And then you work up the ranks as you learn and grow in your military service. And so there's very much a process like this that takes place in Christianity. The Apostle Paul labors this point constantly. He says to the Corinthians at one point, he says, you guys should be ready for meat, but you still need milk. What he's saying to them is you guys are still babies. You guys should be on the front lines, knocking down the gates of hell for the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. But you're just babies. Grow up. Trust me, this is, ministry's hard. Amen? So often, I just want to grab a man. I would never grab or touch a woman. I just want to grab a man who claims to be a disciple of Christ and say, man, grow up. Grow up. You're still a baby. You ought to have matured by now. So you see, to engage in the Great Commission is much more than just making converts, okay? The neglect of making disciples, friends, I believe is at least one reason why the church has failed in the West. The focus over the last many decades has become so centered on a personal salvation and personal well-being that many churches have forgotten it's not converts we're seeking to make. That wasn't the command Jesus gave. The command he gave was to make disciples. Conversion is simply the first step in the commission we've been given. One pastor I know put it this way many years ago. He said, the church got really good at catching fish, but not at cleaning them. And today we're feeling the results of that. Because you see, conversion or salvation is not the end of the journey. It's just the beginning. And anyone can say they're a convert. But we're called to make and to be disciples. A disciple is one who strives to be like their master. Jesus asked the people in Luke 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you don't do what I say. You don't do what I say. You see, it's not those who profess Christ as converts who go to heaven, but only those who actually possess him and grow as his disciples for the work of the kingdom. Did you catch that? Profession is meaningless if it's not followed by a maturity that happens over time as someone grows as Christ's disciple because, friends, the Bible is very explicit, very explicit in its understanding of who the children of God are. It's those who bear fruit. It's those who mature. It's those who strive to live lives of holiness in accordance with the commands of Christ and seek to build his kingdom. Jesus says in John 14 and 15, several times in several different ways, that those who love him will keep his commandments. Okay? Now, what he's not saying is that doing a bunch of stuff in his name proves you love him. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that those who truly love him, whose hearts and minds have been transformed, who have become his disciples and are his people, those people will do things that he commands. 
That's what he's saying. And he backs it up in Matthew 7 when he says that many will come to him at judgment and do precisely what I've just mentioned. They'll claim to be converts. And on the day of judgment, they'll say, Lord, Lord, I did many things in your name to show you that I love you. And he'll say to them, depart from me. You worker of lawlessness, I never knew you. And so friends, conversion is not the litmus test for genuine salvation. Discipleship is. Amen? And friends, those who have been truly saved will become disciples of Jesus and will grow in their faith. They will mature. They will learn to discern right from wrong. They will begin to mortify and kill their sin. They will grow in their understanding of what it means to live lives of sacrifice and worship. They'll begin to understand that as they are transformed more and more into the image of Christ, that they'll be met with hostility from the world, Satan, and sometimes even their own flesh that fights against them, and even sometimes against God himself who disciplines those he loves, his disciples, to help them grow as they seek to live for the king. Does this sound familiar? I would hope so, because it's almost verbatim what Scott said last week. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so, friends, let me say this. The gospel, okay, the gospel is not less than your personal salvation and your personal well-being. It's not less than that. But it's also so much greater. Yeah? It's so much greater. It's not less than your personal salvation and your personal well-being. But it for sure is much greater. It's the good news, not of just your salvation, but of the king and of his kingdom that is not just for you, but for you and for you to participate in until you die to go be with him or until he returns to set all things right on his day of judgment. And we do this not just for the glory of God, but it's for the salvation of souls. Someone once said about being a Christian that the road is very narrow and the way is very hard and there are few that find it. You heard that before? Because that's right out of the lips of Jesus. And then we get to the last and the best part of the Great Commission. And that's this. Jesus promises that he will never leave those who trust in him and follow him. He says, behold, which in the Greek means pay attention. So he says, pay attention to what I'm about to say. I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, the mission is hard. The task we've been given from the king is difficult. It's wrought with failures and successes, ups and downs, hills and valleys, just as Jesus said it would be. I've said this so many times, especially over the last several years. The reason the way the world is, the reason the, way, the, reason the world is the way it is, is because the Bible's true. Jesus said it would be difficult. He said it would be wrought with ups and downs and successes and failures. But he also said, for those who endure to the end, they shall be saved. And though we may not see it clearly now, 
one day we will see the king and his kingdom in all its glory, knowing that we were on the front lines battling and doing the bidding of our Lord and Savior until his return, and that lives were changed, transformed, and saved because of the work we've participated in. He is the one who has authority in heaven and earth, and it's him living in us and through us, his disciples for the glory of God, the growth of his kingdom, the good of all people until he returns. And friends, everyone will bow the knee to King Jesus. Everyone. And so our efforts, our efforts are to make disciples and build his kingdom now. As we work and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do this to seek and compel others with the gospel why there's still hope for them. Because one day every knee will bow before King Jesus. And for those who submit to him now, it will mean glory in eternity. But for those who bow to him after it's too late, it will be to be cast off into eternal damnation and punishment. And we don't want that for anybody. It won't be easy. Being a disciple of the king is filled with hardship and heartache. Has anybody here been a Christian long enough to experience incredible hardship in their life? Amen. <laughs> right? Amen. And why is that? Why is it so hard to be a disciple of Christ because, friends, precisely what Jesus said, his kingdom's growing, his church is growing. And it's because of this, or it's because it's growing in the midst of a fallen world that it's so hard. Friends, we're not saving saints. We're not saving saints. We're saving or attempting to save sinners. In the gospel, we're calling sinners to repentance and faith and service to the king. They resent this oftentimes. Sometimes they fight back. Sometimes they bite. Most won't get in the boat. But the ones who do, for the glory of God, for the majesty of his name, and for the king's army to grow and continue its assault against the gates of hell, the lies of Satan, and the poverty of the world. And that's worth fighting for. And that's the joy we experience as the angels when even just one sinner repents. It's Luke 15, 10. The Apostle Paul says that this fight that we're in is making disciples, in making disciples and building the kingdom. He says this, it's a light momentary affliction that we're experiencing as God is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. What a day that will be. History is going somewhere. History is going somewhere. And we want to be part of the king's body and bride as we participate in Christ's reconciling work of building his kingdom until he returns and takes his seat upon the eternal throne of David and the new heavens and new earth. And then finally, as we close, I want to ask you to do something this morning. If you're able to, well, let me say it this way. I want you to understand that you're here, you're in this church, you're in this seat today because someone, somewhere, somehow believed deeply in participating in the Great Commission. Are you with me? 
someone, somewhere, somehow came alongside you and shared the gospel with you. The good news of the king, that sinners are lost and need to repent and fall before the king and say, Lord, save me and be transformed by God. Baptized in the name of Jesus, or the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Start coming to church, growing, learning, becoming a disciple of Christ. You're here today because someone, somewhere, somehow deeply believed in the Great Commission. Amen? If you know who that person is, think on them even now. Put that person in your mind. And thank God for them. Thank God for them that they took this seriously. Because if they didn't, your eternal future could be somewhere else rather than in the hands of Jesus of whom he will not lose a single one. In the Gospel of John, he writes these words at the very beginning of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So I hope you'll leave here this morning encouraged in two ways. First, that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not an easy path, but it's a glorious one. And that you would stand firmly, not in how you feel, not in where your emotions are leading you, not based on the troubles or difficulties of your life, but what Jesus has promised to those who love him, that no matter what you go through in this life, you will spend your eternity with him and with his people. And then the second thing I want you to leave here is with this understanding, that you are, as disciples of Jesus Christ, participating in the Great Commission when you do anything in his name. Paul says, do all things, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And so friends, if your limitation is that the only thing you can do to expand the kingdom as a disciple of Jesus Christ is pray, pray, and know this, that while to the world that may seem like something small, prayer is actually the greatest weapon in our armory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to come back and see the good work you're doing here through these good people that are your disciples. And um, I pray that we're encouraged. I pray that uh, everyone here understands that uh, if they belong to you, they're safe. They need not be discouraged, dismayed, doubt. They need not be overcome with, with fear or, or trouble. Our circumstances, our circumstances do not define who we are. We are disciples of the King. And so, Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of these things. And then help us to mature and move beyond seeing what's right in front of our face and seeing the big picture of what you're doing in the world. 
You are building your church. You are growing your kingdom. And then help us to come alongside others through the tip of the spear, your church, your body, your bride, to participate in that great commission work as you're already doing and have been doing in this church, Rock Bible Church, as they come on Sundays, as they give their tithes and offerings, as they participate in ministry, as they go down to Mexico, as they lead in worship, as they sing in worship, as they leave this place and go to their daily lives of work and raising children and making dinners and all those things that we do, may we do it all for the glory of God, knowing that we, we, your disciples, are the ones you are using to build your church and to build your kingdom on earth and to bring hope to all those whom you will call. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And may we continue to always believe the promises we've been given. May we see with spiritual eyes in this dark world as we long for the day when you return. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.